0: Hi and welcome to the Strad Podcast. I'm Davina Shum, I'm a cellist and I'm the online editor at the Strad. Luthier Corinthia Klein wrote a feature article in January 2021 called Basic Maintenance, Avoiding Instrument Carnage. As the weather gets warmer here in the Northern Hemisphere and colder in the Southern Hemisphere, players may notice unwanted changes occurring with their instruments and bows. Unfortunately, not all players know what to do when these things happen. As players, we spend plenty of time honing our craft, working on our musical intentions and technique. It's no surprise that basic Lutheran knowledge sometimes falls by the wayside. It did for me, anyway. How many players do you know who get a bit panicky when they find a buzz, or are scared to move the bridge, or freak out when a string unravels? Corinthia spoke to me about the importance of, first of all, keeping calm as well as educating and empowering players with the reasoning behind basic luthery procedures. We also spoke about thinking from the perspective of the instrument, as well as how climate change may affect your bow rehair. You might notice that the sound quality isn't fantastic in this episode, but there's a lot of good information in there. Just pretend Corinthia is speaking to you on the phone. Here she is. Corinthia, welcome to the Strad Podcast. We're here to talk about... How to look after your stringed instrument as the weather gets warmer. So here in the Northern Hemisphere, we're hurtling into the summer months. Here in London, it's certainly getting a lot warmer and a lot more humid. So it's that time of year where things are starting to go wrong with instruments in certain ways. Longtime readers of the Strad will be familiar with some of your work. Um, the fact that you wrote a book recently about how to maintain your instrument in a basic way without encroaching on the territory of the luthier. What are your top tips for keeping an instrument in shape? What are some common things you see at this time of year? The biggest thing at the moment would be uh, peg sticking. In Wisconsin, the weather gets
1: pretty, the range is pretty large. It gets very cold in <laughs> the winter, and then it actually gets very warm and humid in the summer. So uh, I have a lot of peg issues that come up when the weather changes. So right now I have a lot of people calling me saying my pegs are all sticking. They always assume the pegs are broken. Um, (laughs) And the nice thing about the seasonal peg issues is they're almost entirely solved by how you simply wind the string onto the peg, which is terrific. I love a simple fix. I'm always happy if someone shows up at my door and I can just take less than a minute to solve the problem and send them on their way and not even charge them. And they're happy. I'm happy. There are a lot of people who let things go too far. I did yesterday actually have to work on a viola where the pegs were so stuck that I had to wrap the head of the peg in leather and use the pliers because I didn't have the physical strength to make them move. In those cases, like that particular case where it had been truly stuck for a while, uh, you can use something like Peg Compound, Peg Dope, I use Hill. Uh, a little bit of that goes a long way. You don't need to do that very often at all. But it does help this time of year if things are stuck beyond the fact that the, the strings aren't helping. But when your strings are wound onto your pegs properly, they actually help you with the function of the pegs themselves. And when the strings are wound against the peg head side of the peg box wall, And they're tracking nicely so that as you turn the peg, the string is dragging the peg itself farther into the peg box. It'll help hold the peg in place. So that's a big tip for winter is usually when the wood shrinks, the the pegs are suddenly slipping. The strings aren't as close as they need to be to the peg box wall. With the different seasons, you need to sort of go back and retract your, your strings a little bit. I think the average player isn't taught. I know I wasn't taught how to put strings on. You get all the way up to college, and at that point, people just assume you're a music major, you know everything you need to know. But as a teacher, you know, you don't have time to teach students sometimes really basic things. You've always got recitals coming or auditions or things are happening, and we've got to move on. So it's it's hard to stop and take time to teach students to do basic things like tuning.
0: And then it becomes quite scary for the student, doesn't it? it Because a string breaks and they think, oh, my gosh, I don't know how to do this thing. Mm -hmm. And then there's this huge amount of mystique, I think, that surrounds anything to do with basic maintenance and and luthery, especially at that level. I mean, one thing I notice with student instruments, and I don't know if you see this as well, is, well, you mentioned earlier about making sure that the string is tracking Mm -hmm. properly around the peg and against the peg box wall. Mm What's the danger of the string being wound, you know, on top of each other so much that it's actually crammed up against the wall? Because I do see that with some students' uh, instruments. Yeah, that
1: can happen. Um, The things I see that are more common and more uh, alarming, I suppose, on student instruments is when it's more haphazard. I'll have a lot of, like, parents who go to help their child and – like they'll put an E string on that overlaps the, the A string. It's like sitting directly on that other string in the box. They don't, don't realize there's like a rhyme and reason to what's happening in there. If you're winding the string up against the peg box wall, you'll reach a point where you can't turn it. I mean, if it's too tight, if it's all jammed up against there, you can't really do anything anymore. So at that point, you sort of stop and literally rewind. <laughs> and (laughs) back it up a little farther and so you have more room. It does take a little practice to get an eye for how far away from that peg box ball to start. Actually, when I was working on my book, I had test readers from lots of different walks of life. And one of the most helpful was a parent who played guitar, but really didn't have expertise in violins and his children are playing these violins. And he always thought, you shouldn't let the strings touch the peg box wall. He thought he was doing the exact opposite because he thought, well, we don't want to touch the varnish anywhere we're trying to be. And I was like, no, that's varnish doing its function. It's fine. And so Nobody cares about the varnish inside the peg box. (laughs) You're you're good. That gets retouched and worked on all the time. It's fine. Uh, But that was new information for him. And as soon as he realized, Oh, I am allowed to do that. um, He was able to stop his kids instruments from, you know, getting
0: out of tune so (laughs) completely unraveling i think that's the key thing isn't it is understanding the reasons behind these things because for me when i eventually learned how to put strings onto my cello which was god knows when that was (laughs) and probably just picked up completely by accident i learned how something should look but not necessarily the reason behind it and then I think once you learn the reason behind it, like as you mentioned before, you know you'll get to that point where it doesn't function properly if it's done a certain way. Then it sort of narrows down your options to the point where you're more likely to do it correctly. I think if you know, yeah. if you know the procedure and you know the reasoning. Yeah, well.
1: I'm a I'm a big proponent of educating people about their equipment because I, I remember back to you know, my student days and how very little I knew. And then I moved on from there to being a teacher, where I knew just as little, but now I was expected to be the expert by my students. You know, that the, the teacher is the first place of uh, knowledge they turn to when they're having an issue, and most teachers really don't know anything about their instruments. They think they do. I mean, I say that as somebody who was in that position, and I remember it very clearly. So when I wrote my book, it was specifically with that concept in mind of, wow, what do I wish I'd known? Because when you're armed with good knowledge, you can make better decisions. You don't have to run every little thing to a luthier if you at least understand what's happening.
0: That's true, actually. You'll probably save a luthier's precious time (laughs) if you're not having to run to them with things that if a player knows they can just fix by themselves. It's not
1: even that I'm being precious about my time. It's like, I think it's players, <laughs> you want to feel empowered and you want to feel confident about what you're doing. And I'm always happy if I can make somebody feel like they are being good caretakers of their instrument. That um, mystique sort of thing, I think the biggest misunderstandings about uh, how equipment works, I run across her with your bow, which is another weather-related thing because the length of the bow hair, you know, it's not... Stagnant. Uh, it changes with weather a lot. I have a big problem with shipments of boats that arrive at my shop from maybe a very humid location and then they'll arrive to my shop in the middle of the winter and, and um, they'll be a very nice length for half an hour and then they all shrink and then I have to <laughs> loosen them all desperately and sometimes rehair them because they're too short for the weather here. I think a lot of players aren't aware of how variable that becomes. They expect that it's just the same all the time. I was working on a bow yesterday where I really appreciated that the player specifically wanted to know why, you know, she didn't know she had enough of the vocabulary necessary to explain her problem, but she was saying, I didn't, that she didn't have enough tension on her bow or she wanted more tension. And I explained that tension comes from the quality of the stick, the amount of, Camber that curve in the bow that helps pull it out. I said there's certain things that are inherent to the bow itself that varies. Since every bow is different; they just are. So it's not a simple procedure when you're rehearing a bow that is exactly the same every time. Every bow <laughs> needs its own consideration. And one of the things with her bow was I, I showed her. She's been playing it for a while. She was a very busy, active musician, and and now it's warm here. And I reheared her bow last, and I showed her. I took the the frog off the stick and I showed her that when I rehaired it initially, the eyelet, which is a little piece that sticks into the stick of the of the bow, originally fit when I pulled it with, you know, regular hand strength. That eyelet fits at the very front of that mortise and that hole in the bow. So that mortise is a certain length and that's the length that you can tighten the bow with. There's the the frog slides along the stick, the length of that Mortise, and I showed her. I said it's stretched out since you've got it because you've been playing it a lot. The hair stretches, and it got really humid and warm, so it wasn't as close to the front of that mortise anymore as it was supposed to be. And I explained I thought that that's what she was feeling. I mean, she's a very sensitive player, and for her to have to tighten the bow farther than she was used to feeling like it should, you know, be it was impacting her sense of what she was doing. And I said, well, you're in luck. You're here for a (laughs) re I'm going to put it right back to where it was initially. but, But, you know, I don't think musicians realize how much things change
0: think that's one thing I definitely noticed in this hot and humid weather that we've been having is that, as you mentioned, how much more you have to tighten your bow here. Or mm-hmm. well, that player that you mentioned, I think I, I kind of understand where she's coming from because it gets to a point where you feel like your thumb's going to fall through mm-hmm. the frog because <laughs> the the bit where the frog meets up with the stick is all of a sudden so far away. It's it's really far away from the, mm-hmm. the again lack of vocabulary, but the leather strappy thing. The grip. Thank you. <laughs> and you feel like you can't get a proper hold yeah. on your bow. So in that situation, when your hair is stretched because of the weather, oh. would you recommend Simplest Fix to get a rehair? What if you've just had one done? Oh, <laughs> if
1: you just had one I mean, in my own shop, if, if something within the first month is not right, I'll just redo it. But if it's been like six months, Well, that's just life at that point. (laughs) There are times where I'm able to, if if the hair hasn't been used a whole lot, sometimes I can go back inside the bow and shorten the hair a tiny bit. Uh, Bows aren't really big on being taken apart and putting back together once there's rosin on all that hair. So sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I I say actually about 80% of the time uh, I can shorten something for somebody a little bit. Most of the time, though, it makes the most sense to just get a rehear. That's actually something I've noticed. I started rehearing bows back in the mid 90s. And I've had the opportunity at this point to rehear some of the same bows, you know, over decades. And that's actually something I've noticed with the climate change that I don't think most people have considered but there are bows that I used to be able to find the length for that would last year round just fine and some of those same bows I can't now they really need to get them oh yeah because it's just the extremes have gotten more extreme some of these bows I just can't find one length that will suffice that's been interesting to watch
0: that really hits home doesn't it you, you feel the effects of it actually accelerating yeah. and impacting your work yeah I was reading your article earlier and there was another segment uh, where you mentioned locating buzzes <laughs> so I know that buzzes sometimes they appear due to change of the weather and, and the environment so if a player encounters a buzz is it something to panic about straight away
1: panic is- on a word. Uh, stopping to investigate is good. The, the moments in a player's life in terms of luthiery where they should panic is if they hear the post fall down, you should take the tension off your instrument. If uh, if the neck is coming loose, that's a panicky moment. Take the tension off. Anything where you have to take the tension off your instrument, one should yeah. sort of just stop and regroup and find a luthier. But puzzles are endlessly, we'll say, fascinating. I have a big list next to my desk and I'm always adding to it every time somebody comes up with a new buzz I add it to the list some are really hard to pinpoint others are very easy most of the time it seams seams theme. are definitely a weather related um, issue seams mm-hmm. are designed to come open a little bit so uh, when an instrument is under tension it has to relieve it in some manner and a seam is a Nice, simple way for a, an instrument to just relieve some of that stress. It's an easy fix, But that does happen like when the humidity drops and the weather gets colder and the wood shrinks, then that's usually when seams are an issue. They're less of an issue in more months or summertime. Actually, that's an interesting thing for luthiers too is in terms of like where your instrument was made. Uh, for a lot of luthiers, like working in a really dry climate that's a nice climate to build instruments in because the instrument is about as dry as it's probably going to get. There's a bigger problem if you're building instruments in a very humid environment and then they travel to some other part of the world where it's dry, then suddenly everything shrinks up. Not fun. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's what happened to me once. I was on an orchestra tour and we went to Boulder in Colorado, which mm-hmm. is really, really high altitude. Mm-hmm. And so all that dry weather and we'd flown from sydney because that's where i studied (laughs) probably one of like the hottest most humid cities in the world and all our instruments obviously were acclimatized Mm to that sort of environment and then we flew to boulder of all places (laughs) and all our instruments just freaked out i don't really know what we could have done in that situation apart from trying to acclimatize with humidifiers is that is that something that you would recommend for people it kind of can i mean it
1: kind of depends the situation i was fortunate enough to just do a concert with a a mandolin orchestra actually in Venice. And we discussed for some of those players the first time, uh, the idea of adjusting humidity in the cases. And our director was mostly worried about the instruments on the plane because he's a solo guitarist who plays around the world and has a lot of experience with his instrument, having issues with how dry the plane can get. And then he said, but you know, we'll be in Venice like on the sea, you know, (laughs) it's not, it's not an issue in Venice. It's uh, an issue traveling to Venice. So for traveling musicians, especially cellists, I really feel for you because it's really complicated. I think the biggest thing to think about is sudden extremes. So for instance, I know of a cellist in the Milwaukee area that's very old cello when he travels to Europe, he gives the cello time to acclimate like first in the case, and then he'll open the case and let it sit like that for a while. And then then he'll take the cover off. He it, it does it in stages. So the instrument isn't startled, I guess. That's something I advise here, too, in Milwaukee. If you're outside with your case for a period of time, like walking from one location to another, to budget enough time to give the case time to acclimate in the warm environment when you get inside before you just open it suddenly and then there's the instrument. So, so those are thoughts. I mean, if you sort of approach
0: it more in stages,
1: that's really helpful to an instrument as opposed to doing something suddenly. Uh, I don't know if that helps you going from Sydney to Boulder, but you know, maybe a little time to just sit in this case and, and, and calm
0: down. Yeah, and also perhaps at the time it's not necessarily your priority because you get into this new city and then you're thrown into a rehearsal. Yeah. You might not necessarily have the time, and so sometimes these things happen. But it's good to... At least have that in the back of your mind so that, as you say, you can kind of budget for any sort of possibility at least and take those extra precautions.
1: Personally, I'm not
0: a fan of any sort of humidity control that fits inside your instrument just because I've
1: seen what happens when those things leak or fail. But if your instrument is spending a good amount of time inside a closed case, there are a lot of products out there for adding moisture. A lot of good ones now, too. There's a lot of choices. But if you can add moisture to your case, instruments like to be, violins like to be in an environment that's like between 40 and 60 percent humidity. You know, for the average person, I usually say, you know, that's a good level for just people too. So if you can keep your home, you know, if you can keep yourself humidified, <laughs> you can assume your instrument is also happy. You know, so okay. it's kind of like, I mean, yeah. whenever we send a rental out with um, people, we always kind of tell them as a rule of thumb, if you wouldn't do it with a baby, don't do it with violence. If you wouldn't leave the baby in the trunk while you have lunch, don't leave the <laughs> violin in the trunk while you have lunch. So, you know, and, and the thing is, you know, these instruments, I think part of what makes them so special is, is that, you know, they're created from once living material. And that material continues to change and move and act alive. So the wood never stops realizing it's wood somehow. I think that, Enhances our connection to them. You know, it's not just that we're cradling them or holding them so close. They they function like living things in some ways. So, so I I often tell people too, like you know, the more you play your instrument, the more you're actually sort of training the wood to to be an instrument. It knows to vibrate like that and to act that way. And I said, if you leave your instrument in a closet, it starts to feels like it's a closet, you know, sounds more like that. <laughs> so maybe don't just leave it in a closet for 10 years. That's not good.
0: It needs to be played in order to to function the way it should, yeah. To live the way they're supposed to live, they need that. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to sort of sum it up. It's just thinking about it from the perspective of not only knowing the reason why we do all these things, but also thinking about it from the perspective of the instrument. And so that way you're kind of led by this extra motivation rather than, Oh, I should do this because someone told me once, or or it looks correct, or something. Mm-hmm. Understanding that it, there is a purpose for it, yeah. and your instrument will be so much better. You know, violins
1: build chills. They have much longer lives than we do. We're just caretakers of them while we have them. Really. So, you know, you have to take a certain amount of responsibility for keeping them healthy for the next person who gets to play them.
0: Corinthia, thank you so much for sharing your insights today. I think we covered. So much to do with instruments and the influence that the weather has on these almost living organisms, as we've established. So, thanks for sharing your thoughts today. Well,
1: thank you very much for having me. I
0: really enjoyed it. That was Corinthia Klein. Check out the show notes for Corinthia's article, Basic Maintenance Avoiding Instrument Carnage, as well as her book, My Violin Needs Help A Repair Diagnostics Guide for Players and Teachers. Don't forget to head to our website, thestrad.com, to check out the latest news, articles, and reviews on all things to do with string playing. And if you like what you see and hear, register and subscribe to access exclusive archival content from 2010 onward. We've got 50% off an online subscription for students, and if you're not sure you're ready to subscribe, take out a free trial for seven days, start reading right away with no strings attached. And if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts right now, give us a little review or a rating. Thanks for listening and tune in again soon for another episode. Take good care. Bye.